Well, we find ourselves in week two of our eight-week series on the parables of Jesus. If you haven't been with us, uh, remember a parable is a short story that illustrates a deep spiritual reality. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus taught in parables all the time. In fact, he taught in parables so often that his disciples, his closest followers, asked him in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, why do you do this? Why do you teach and speak to people so often in parables? They're, they're implying, why a story every time? Why a metaphor? And Jesus responds in verse 13 of chapter 13 in a, in a very telling way. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. I shared last week how much to my wife's frustration, I always listen to her words, but I don't always hear what she's saying. And I trust that some of you can relate with me. See, too often my listening is little more than a courtesy pause while I craft my response, my wise counter-argument. This is precisely why Jesus taught in parables so often, because God is in the business of using foolish things like simple stories to confound those who think they're wise. The crowds and the religious leaders always wanted to listen to Jesus, but precious few actually heard him. And those who did, who really heard Jesus as he taught through these parables, they weren't just given food for thought or instructions on how to have a better life. Those who actually heard Jesus were moved in awe, stirred in faith and worship. This is a, a, a sobering thought. I shared this and reflected on this last week, last Sunday, that, you know, for those of us who spent our whole lives in church, Sunday after Sunday, listening with our ears to the words of Scripture being preached, could it be that we've never actually heard what Jesus has been saying? This morning, we'll be looking at, like I said earlier, Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you don't own a Bible, Mr. James DeWald back here, the handsome man in the plaid would love, oh, and Miss Susan Grassy, the handsome young woman in the... The beautiful young woman in the Substance Church shirt, I like to call you Vanna. Uh, there are Bibles here for you. We'd love to give you a Bible. Not to draw too much attention there. Sorry about that. So our passage this morning finds Jesus in Capernaum, which is a small fishing town on the northern, in the northern region of Galilee. And, and he's just finished teaching his disciples and the crowds about how to lovingly correct sin issues in the church 
amongst church members. The focus is really on the sinner, if you will, in the verses preceding our passage. But this morning's passage, which we're about to read, we will see Jesus. He continues on this subject, this issue of sin and the church, but now he's going to be speaking to those who have been sinned against. And so let's read Matthew 18. We'll start in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt Because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in his and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, what can we ask but that you would give us ears, not just to listen, but ears to hear what you desire to say to us, Lord. Let us hear clearly. Humble me and speak to us, for your servants are listening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Alexander Dumas's classic story, The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes, uh, the lead character, the, the main protagonist of the story, is an innocent man 
who suffers betrayal at the hands of his friends. He is wrongly and deliberately imprisoned for a long time. He loses his job, all of his possessions, everything that he has. He loses his fiance, Mercedes. And as he serves his sentence in the horrible French prison known as Chateau d'If, he dreams of the day when he will exact revenge on all his betrayers. And upon his escape, that is exactly what he does. The story follows him as he systematically dismantles those who conspired against him and who wronged him so grievously. It's, uh, it's as depressing as it sounds. It's an enthralling book. It's a, it's a wonderful work of literature, a wonderful read, but it unwittingly shows the reader a little something about the bondage of unforgiveness. See, consumed by vengeance, Edmund Dantes became more of a prisoner outside Chateau d'If than he was inside. Because that's ultimately what unforgiveness does. It imprisons us. In a literal sense, this imprisonment of unforgiveness is exactly what we see in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, is it not? There's a king we see who wants to settle accounts across all his kingdom. The, the first servant who's brought in owes the king, it says, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the largest currency known in this region. This is high, it was, think about it as like a $100 bill. It's the highest currency. And the number 10,000 was the largest numeral designation in the Greek language at the time. And so Jesus is making an extreme point by saying this man owed the king 10,000 talents. The point is, it is an outlandish, unpayable amount of money. It is so extreme. It's so exaggerated. The people in the crowd would have been like, dang, that man is never going to pay that back. One talent equaled 20 years' wages. So 10,000 talents would have also equaled 100 million denarii. The debt that this first servant owes the king is outright unpayable. It, it, it's impossible. And so the king determines that in order to recoup some of his losses, goodness, it'd be a drop in the bucket, that he'll sell the servants and his family and, and he'll use those profits to, to regain a, a drop. But the servant pleads for mercy. He says something really foolish. After asking, have patience with me, he says, I will pay you everything. No. No. The good king, the good wise king knows this is an unpayable debt. The servant will never do it. And so the king does something remarkable. Out of pity for the servant, the king releases him. He forgives him 
meaning he cancels the man's debt. All indebtedness that the man once experienced, gone. Gone. As the servant leaves, we just read it. He spots another servant who happens to owe him 100 whole denarii, which is milk money compared to what he had just been pardoned. Nevertheless, he ruthlessly pursues this man. He grabs him by the neck. He demands immediate payment. And even though the the servant pleads in the exact same way, "Have, have patience with me and I will pay you, which was likely to happen. A hundred denarii would not have taken that that long to repay. But the first servant is unconvinced. And he throws the man into prison. So when the king receives word of this servant who had just been forgiven so much, and he hears word that he's just treated another so mercilessly, he summons him and these words sting to the bone, you wicked servant. I forgave all of your debt. Every last denarii, all 100 million, and you could not extend mercy to your fellow servant who owed you 100? And so the king, who is just, has no choice but to deliver him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which would be never. Now those who were listening to Jesus as he told this story would have had the same reaction that I hope we are having right now. Are you not appalled by the servant who would not forgive such a minor debt after having been forgiven his unpayable debt, we're supposed to be appalled. And then Jesus finishes in verse 35 by essentially saying, and this is what God the Father will do to everyone who does not forgive others from the heart. The first servant is me. The first servant is you. We have been pardoned of an outrageous, unpayable debt. And yet we are often the first to hold the debts of our brothers and sisters over their heads. At the heart of this parable is one striking point. That's the way the parables work. We don't really get to exegete them super in-depth. There's one point that Jesus is trying to convey, and it is this. The the degree to which we experience forgiveness is the degree to which we will extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus wants us to forgive those who've wronged us, but granting forgiveness is only possible after grasping forgiveness the forgiveness that God has granted to us in Christ. We will not extend what we do not fully understand we've been given. I'll say that thesis again. 
the degree to which we experience forgiveness, some of us, like the first servant, may not really have too profound of an experience of forgiveness. We might think lightly of it. The degree to which we experience forgiveness is the, the, the degree to which we will extend that forgiveness to others. And so, unless any of us here today have managed to perfectly grasp the forgiveness of God given to us in Christ, we are all in some way, shape, or form struggling with unforgiveness. This parable is for every person in the room. Young or old, rich or poor, religious or non. Maybe you've been grieved by an ex-spouse or a would-have-been spouse. Maybe it was a close friend like Edmund Dantes that betrayed you. Maybe a parent abused you, neglected you, a sibling. Maybe one of your children is running so rogue it just causes such grief and turmoil or a co-worker or something your neighbor said to you years ago. In some way, shape, or form, each and every one of us is at this present moment wrestling and struggling with unforgiveness. And so concerning our passage this morning, I'd like to consider there are going to be three quick things about unforgiveness. Number one, we're going to look at where it comes from. Number two, we're going to look at what it produces and number three, we're going to look at how we can be delivered from an unforgiving spirit. If you want a shorthand way of looking at this, number one, we're going to be looking at the root. Number two, the fruit. Number three, the remedy of unforgiveness. So number one, let's look at where unforgiveness comes from. The only explanation as to why the first servant walked right out of the king's court right after having been uh, pardoned of such an unimaginable debt, uh, unimaginable debt and, and, and choked out and imprisoned his fellow servant, the only explanation is because deep down in the first servant, he did not grasp the forgiveness he had just received. He did not understand it. The only explanation as to why he did not grasp it is that deep down he must have thought he deserved forgiveness. That somehow he was entitled to it. Somehow. The root of our unforgiveness towards others is not only an overvaluing of the debt of the person that is owed to us. It is a grievous undervaluing of the forgiveness we've received from God. See, unforgiveness blindly says, because you have hurt me in this way, you've crossed a line that I have never crossed. The line you crossed is worse than any line I've ever crossed, and therefore, there is simply no way I can cancel such a debt. There's no way I can pardon. There's, there's no way I can extend you mercy. Praise Jesus that he didn't treat us this way, though he had every right to. 
when we boil it down all the way to the bottom, unforgiveness is simply unbelief of the gospel. We either don't think our sin is that bad, or we think that somehow we've managed to earn forgiveness. Lethal, lethal mistakes to believe. Such was the case with the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They would teach, at the time in this region, the Pharisees would often teach that one only need to forgive a person up to three times. That was a popular teaching of the Pharisees. Apparently they would have made better umpires than pastors. Three strikes, you're out. Now Peter... One of Jesus' closest followers knows that Jesus talks an awful lot about forgiveness. He's always talking about forgiveness, this Jesus. He's always teaching his disciples to pray, showing them that forgiveness needs to be part of every prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so Peter, knowing what the Pharisees teach, that we forgive three times, and knowing what Jesus' heart is for mercy, it's why he asked the question in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What Peter is asking is the exact same question my kids ask every night at dinner. How many more bites before I can get down? How many bites do I have to take before I can get down? What is the minimum number of bites before I can leave? G, Peter, Peter's asking the same thing. How many times must we forgive? What's, what's the minimum? Four times? Five? I mean, Jesus, I'm going to be generous here. Do we forgive our offenders as many as seven times? Not only is Peter grievously off, his answer being no better than the Pharisees' three but keeping record of forgiveness at all is a wholesale misunderstanding of forgiveness altogether, is it not? Jesus says, no, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. Some translations render that seventy times seven times. Meaning this, true disciples of Jesus are to forgive without keeping track. We are not to even keep count. We are always to forgive. We are never not to forgive. Because in the kingdom of heaven, praise God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Left to the rule of the Pharisees, Peter would have been in a heap of trouble in the next few days after he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. At the root of unforgiveness is an undervaluing of the forgiveness we've received from God in Christ. It is an unbelief of the gospel it is an unbelief that, that our sin, well, it's the belief that our sin really isn't that bad. 
or that somehow we've managed to earn the right to forgiveness. And so let's look at this then, what this unbelief produces. See, unforgiveness needn't necessarily look like the servant in the parable who chokes out his friend and throws him into prison. It needn't necessarily look like Edmond Dantes who plots and executes the demise of his betrayers. It's likely that in 21st century America, in, in a town such as Worcester, that unforgiveness manifests itself in much more subtler ways. Coldness and rudeness. Avoidance of that person. Obsession over that person. Anybody ever been hurt and you just seemingly can't stay off their Facebook wall? What are they up to? You hate it when they have victories? When their kid wins the spelling bee? I hate that. I'm not trying to make light of it. You desperately want to compete with them? I'm posting up 10 pictures of, of our new kitchen and the way that it looks and I'm going to make sure this person sees it because, because of that thing that happened a long time ago. What are the other ways that, that, that unforgiveness manifests gossip? Man, is that ever rampant in the church? These fruits of unforgiveness, these subtle fruits are a lot like carbon monoxide. We don't often see them or smell them operating in our lives, but they are killing us. They are suffocating us and imprisoning us. Because it turns out that the control we think we have over someone who has wronged us ends up controlling us. This is why the writer of Hebrews exhorts in chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root rises up out of that unforgiveness to cause trouble and defile many. What is it, brothers and sisters, that you tend to hold on to? Who comes to mind as we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal specific people and specific instances to our hearts? Who is it that rises to the surface that we are holding a debt over and it's suffocating us? Instead of focusing on our Savior and what He has done for us, which we will get to in a moment, we can't. Stop focusing on these people. They are our idol. Many of us are being held captive by unforgiveness and we may not even know it. And just because we've told someone who's come to us to seek our forgiveness, just because we've told them, I forgive you, doesn't necessarily mean that we've done so. Amen? We've got to see that what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's pointing us to a better way. The kingdom of heaven 
is the rule of Jesus over our hearts and lives. And it's a good rule. And when we follow him and submit ourselves to him, it is to our joy. What Jesus is doing in bringing the kingdom of heaven into this parable, he's saying there is a better way than holding on to the grievances, to the grudges, to allowing a root of bitterness. That's not life. That's not abundant life. I want to give you joy. I want to give you life and life to the full. And he's saying, forgive Now, this is a hard word for some of us in the room who have experienced tremendous suffering. And so I don't want to make light of those situations. And so I'm going to cover what should be done in those circumstances as well. But let me just encourage you with this. Forgiveness takes time. And we pursue forgiveness by pursuing Christ. Okay? It's not a matter that needs to be completely resolved in the clear today before we leave. Jesus is not telling us this parable and laying down another law. He's not saying, if you withhold forgiveness, God's going to not forgive you. What he's saying is if we withhold forgiveness, we're completely misunderstanding the gospel to begin with. That is what will condemn us. Forgiving, uh, Forgiving others frees us. That's what Jesus wants us to see. It's, our, it's to our joy that we battle any unforgiveness that the Holy Spirit is bringing up in our hearts as we look at this parable. Lastly, number three, and I'll be brief. How can we be delivered? What's the remedy for unforgiveness? There is one. Because we must experience the forgiveness that God gives to us before we can extend forgiveness to others, right? Our ability to forgive is directly linked. It is inextricably linked to our understanding of the gospel. And here is the gospel. That Jesus, while we were still sinners, died for us. While I in my pride and in my arrogance, was running headlong into hell, and my pride and arrogance in my life before Christ looked an awful lot like a Christian. He was a pretty good guy. I just obeyed the rules to my glory, not his. In my sin, Jesus died for my sin. While I was yet a sinner, Jesus became my sin and died on the cross in my place. You have to insert yourself into this narrative. You were doing the similar things. We were all following the prince of the power of this world, according to Ephesians 3. We were all following the course of this world. We were all doing what ought not to be done and not doing what should be done. We were all disobeying the creator who created us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if that wrecks your head because of the fact that it happened 2,000 years ago, listen, God is outside of time. He doesn't see necessarily in linear order. He sees the whole thing. So when Christ was on the cross, if you, by faith, are united to him, You are on that cross with him. Your sins have been paid for before you asked for forgiveness. Before you asked 
Jesus would often, as he was, you know, at the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's traveling around Galilee, Jesus would often go up to a beggar or someone in the margins or, or a sinner, an outright sinner, and tell them first, before he healed them, what? Your sins are forgiven. Before they even asked. Christ forgives us while, while we are still sinners. He died on the cross before we repented. How can we be delivered like Stephen was? Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? As he's being stoned by the religious leaders for blasphemy, for following the way of Jesus. And as they are putting him to death, in the very moment, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. They know not what they do. As they were killing him. Those who have been transformed by God's forgiveness, those who truly understand the debt of theirs that has been pardoned, the fact that we deserve eternal punishment for our cosmic disobedience, those who understand that we've been pardoned of that punishment are the ones who will transfer forgiveness to others. Now listen, back to the person in this room who may have been rescued from sex trafficking. Maybe a spouse left you in a horrible way. Maybe you were abused violently. There are things that you will never be able to forgive in your own power. But with Christ, you not only can, you will. Christ wants you to be freed from bearing even the unforgiveness of those atrocities in your heart. He can, by his Holy Spirit, indwell you. He can produce the freedom that you long for. He can do it. Just look at Rachel, was it Den Hollander? Who's been in the news lately with Larry Nasser, the, the, the gymnast doctor that abused all of those girls. Have you heard her forgiveness statement? The families of the African-American church who lost all of their loved ones when the young man went in and, and gunned them all down, just read the transcripts of their forgiveness statement. Only the Spirit of Christ can do that. If we take the Lord's Prayer seriously, we ought to be bringing him our forgiveness, our unforgiveness, every time we pray. Jesus says, I want you to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He says, when you pray, pray like this. I'm the first in line to tell you I hardly ever pray for a spirit of forgiveness toward those who've wronged me in my heart. But that is the demonstration that we understand the gospel. Jesus says that those who don't forgive their brother or sister from the heart have not received the gospel, or at least they're acting like they've not received the gospel in their heart. It's a sobering truth, is it not? Here I was thinking I, I had about five minutes of material and I've gone five minutes over. <laughs> I want to close with just a couple of add-ons 
okay? As Christians, I hope that we can help each other in this. And here's how I hope we can help each other. We ought to be the best repenters in the world. We ought to make it easy for our Christian brothers and sisters and our, our, our worldly neighbors. We ought to make it easy for them to forgive us by how thoroughly we, we repent. Growing up in the Lawson house, we were told that we had to stand there in front of the, the victim that we took a toy from. We had to look them in the eyes. We not only had to tell them what we did, we had to tell them why we were sorry and then ask for their forgiveness. It was like a 15-minute ordeal. <laughs> it's unfortunate that so many adults these days sound a lot like my toddler. Sorry. They're not sorry, are they? We ought to be kings and queens of repentance. We ought to make it really easy for our brothers and sisters to forgive us. Secondly, forgiveness does not necessarily mean friendship. Okay? Paul and Barnabas forgave one another the disagreement that they had about Mark. And they went and they had thriving ministries and kind of agreed to disagree. In some instances, that's perfectly okay. In others, people you're in close community with and you're not leaving Worcester anytime soon, friendship is the end goal. Reconciliation is the end goal. And Christ, pursuing him, can get us there. I already said it, but forgiveness is a slow work. And this is how we do it. It's a day-by-day surrender. Because forgiveness is not natural, when we're in our CGs, our community groups, or when we see our children seek forgiveness, or when they forgive others, we need to make a freaking party out of it. We need to make a big deal when our children forgive one another. This is good. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, Christ, has forgiven you. There's a catchy song that goes along with that that I can teach you when we eat in the cafe. <laughs> Lastly, I'll say this, and I'll end. Because only the Holy Spirit can birth a work of forgiveness in our hearts. We ought to celebrate. If any of you have ever truly forgiven someone, praise the Lord. Because you can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. This whole topic of forgiveness and unforgiveness does really nothing to naturalists and atheists. Doesn't really do a whole lot for Gnostics, humanists, They can say, oh yeah, we value forgiveness, but only Christians can logically forgive because of what Christ has done. He became sin. He who knew no sin became our sin and died on the cross that we deserve so that we, by faith, could become the very righteousness of God and be reconciled back to him. Hallelujah for the good news. Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who by his blood forgives our debts. Lord, help us to make the connection beyond all of the babbling that I did today. Help us to hear with ears that hear from your parable of the unforgiving servant. Lord, you desire us to forgive our debtors. 
It is to our joy. It is to our freedom. Right now, as the Holy Spirit even continues to bring to mind those that we are still holding debts over, oh Lord, forgive us of our unforgiveness and lead us to pursue reconciliation. Help us to have the awkward conversation that will lead to freedom. And may there be unity in your church, not just Substance Church. Maybe we've left churches. Maybe we've found ourselves at Substance Church. Of course, none of us were here two years ago, three years ago. We've all come from somewhere. And so, Lord, if we've left relationships that are, that are shattered and scattered and marred in unforgiveness, oh, God, for the sake of union in the body of Christ, would you lead us to reconciliation? And for the person here who has been hurt grievously and they think to themselves right now, there's no way I can ever forgive. Prove them wrong. Lead them to pursue you. Show them what you have forgiven in them and then give them the gift of forgiveness. Ready us now, Lord, as we take of the bread and the cup, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.